electronic device that has your Bible on it. Let's hold them up. I'm a child of God. Have in my hand. Powerful Word of God. Can change lives. Heal broken hearts. Save man's soul. Here's our prayer, Lord Jesus, today. Speak to me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now look at your neighbor and say, Whew, when did you get here? All right. Glad to have uh, visitors today. We're grateful that you're here and pray that God has a blessing in store for you as well. Today, I want to spend a little time closing our series on love. I want to talk about the mystery of marriage. Uh, my wife told me to be very careful in what I say today. So uh, I will. <clears throat> I have it all written out. I'm going to try to stick to my notes and not go elsewhere. Uh, sometimes I tend to go elsewhere. So if I see all of you getting up to leave, I'll know I went elsewhere. <laughs> but uh, hopefully you won't. We are living in an, in an incredible time in our history. There are, we're in a transitional moment, I believe, with all of my heart. Uh, fundamental issues in our society, um, the things that are low in life, seem to be made holy, and the things that are holy in life are seem to be made low. And it's just a, a, it's, it's a crazy time. Uh, issues, people, events, truths, lies, they seem to be speeding along on this expressway of, of life. Uh, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to engage in this dominant mass of culture. Uh, it's easy just to get on the entrance ramp of this expressway, so to speak, of confusion and be swept along quickly and so quickly that we forget to ask life's important questions. We fail to look at things as God would have us, as his people see them. We live in what I call a paganized time. But you know what? It's not new. All you got to do is read the Old Testament. All you got to do is read the book of Deuteronomy. Paganism is not a new idea, but there are many Christians who are being newly awakened to the fact that we live in a paganized world. Uh, I'm going to give you a lot of information before I ever get to your outline, but, so stay with me, okay? And I'll get to your outline, I promise. But I want us to talk about some of the symptoms of a paganized age. Pagans, as I said, speak of holy things as if they were lowly, and they speak of lowly things as if they were holy, and, and that therein will lie the confusion. The pagan world, the pagan mind, the pagan culture worship lowly things and disparage those holy things. It's the essence of paganism. When we talk about sex and gender and marriage, we are going to be speaking about things the world talks a lot about. In fact, tonight the Oscars will be given out to movies that glorify some of this paganism. The problem is the world takes the lowly and calls it holy. The world doesn't know what to do with the idea of sex. I was hoping more young people would be here. They need to hear this message today. So make sure that they tune in online when we post it online this week. But the world doesn't know what to do with it. It either corrupts sex in its lowest form of human expression or it elevates sex to a level of worship. 
as if sex was the highest and greatest and purest thing in all the world, which it never has been and it is not. But as God's people, we are not going to talk about lowly things in a holy way or holy things in a lowly way. We're going to talk about holy things in a holy way. And I thought it was important to finish this series on love by letting you know what the Bible says and in a very straightforward way. Because if we can't talk about this at church, we're in trouble. And this should be where people learn about marriage and the benefits and blessings of marriage. And we're going to talk about that. But uh, today, marriage is a, a flashpoint of cultural confusion. Americans still marry, and many of them again and again and again. <laughs> marriage is an opportunity for a festival or a party, but it has also been so humiliated and so redefined that it bears little resemblance to what the Scripture teaches. Feminists hate the idea of marriage, it, Betty Friedan said 40 years ago that marriage would be a prison of domestic captivity. Gloria Steinem, one of the most famous feminists, said, a woman needs a husband like a fish needs a bicycle. Well, the interesting thing is that she got married in her 60s, so I guess the fish decided to ride a bicycle. <laughs> the sad reality is that the world looks at marriage and says it's about limitation. To the heterosexual who thinks it's a worldly way and with a paganized mind, Mary says, one, when no one wants to say one. The heterosexual, uh, the homosexual also sees marriage as a limitation because marriage says of the union of man and woman. That's supposed to be normal. That's the purpose. That's the design. So when you look at what is happening in the courts, in the culture, in our political conversations, you understand that marriage has become a battleground. The world isn't sure it knows what to do with it, but it knows it's important. And when we define marriage, we are defining normal expectation, design, and purpose from Almighty God. Where should we as Christians look for a holy conversation about a holy reality? Genesis chapter 2. Those Bibles you held up a while ago, if you would turn there to, he, to Genesis chapter 2. If all we had in our conversation about marriage were the first two chapters of Genesis, that's all we really need to understand what God intended and, and the urgency and the eternal importance of marriage. Marriage concerns His original design in creation for His glory. Now that last word is all important, His glory. Our conversation about marriage is going to center on the fact that marriage is one of God's central means of displaying His glory in this world. So when we talk about sex or gender or marriage or any of these related issues, the basic questions always are, where is God's glory? How will God's glory be demonstrated? How must we order our lives and rearrange our thinking so that our greatest concern is to see the glory of the one true and living God demonstrated in His creation for His good pleasure and as a witness to His greatness? Those are the questions that we should be asking. Marriage is under attack. But we begin in Genesis 2, an incredible passage. We pick it up at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what uh, he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no, not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now here it's a historical account of the creation of woman, and the establishment of marriage. And it begins with God's declaration that it's not good for man to be alone. Now, all of you women that are married, you agree with that statement. Because men left alone... Well, no, I shouldn't say anymore. <clears throat> but it was not a self-realization that Adam came to. He did not know any better than being alone. That's all he knew. That's all he understood. But it was God's authority and God's purpose in creation to declare that it was not good for Adam to be alone. Man's aloneness was by God's design. It anticipated his creation of woman. But here is an interesting thing that's often missed. God declares in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. And then he reveals his purpose in verse 19. I will make him a helper fit for him, a compliment. I will complete the man uh, in the helper I will create for him is what God was saying. In our imagination, we tend to move immediately to that creation of Eve. But that's not what happens in the, the next in the text, however. In, uh, it, it goes on in the next verse. It says, So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now I'm not sure how he came up with the word sloth. Or mosquito. Would prefer he didn't name mosquitoes. Hard barks. I think Chris said uh, platypus. Yeah. But in front of Adam is a zoo. All these animals are parading by and he's naming them. But one of the crucial things that we need to take away from that aspect of this verse is that man, Adam, has authority in creation. Man has authority over the animals. It's a huge thing. It's a delegated authority, but authority nevertheless. Human beings are not mere animals in the company of other animals. We are the bearers of God's own image. Given responsibilities of dominion and stewardship, we are unique in creation. But what do you... I think Adam learned from naming all the animals. Well, he noticed that there was a he and a she, a he cat, a she cat, a he dog, a she dog, a he eagle, and a she eagle. And Adam must have learned from this, although he had authority over these animals, they had a completeness that he didn't have. We are just not reading that into this text because in verse 20 of Genesis 2, it says, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. There was not found a compliment for him. He, he saw every animal. He looked at the entire animal kingdom. He found no one fitting him. Verse 21. 
The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with his flesh. And the rib that the Lord uh, had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I like how Carlton, Carlton Pearson described this incident in, in the Bible. He said, when Adam woke up, he looked and said, whoa, man. <laughs> you see, he was excited to see God's creation and the creation that complimented him. That complimented him. But look what the Bible says. Adam didn't respond in a silly way. He simply said, at last. At last. You see, the whole lengthy, incredible process of naming those animals, Adam had come to the conclusion that it was not good for him to be alone. So he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is me. This corresponds to me. This complements me. She is not me, but she is like me. This is not just a matter of flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. Adam sees a fellow image bearer of God. Boy, don't forget that. He has found the one that God has created especially for him, that helper who will complete him. The text says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And then there's the divine decision, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. How in the world was it that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed? That's what we want, isn't it? To be unashamed before Almighty God. Isn't that our great desire? But you see, I want to promise you today that in the midst of a paganized world, in the midst of a confusing age, in the midst of so much corruption and confusion, we need to recover the fact that in the sanctity of Christian marriage, we come as close as we can get to being naked and not ashamed before our Creator. There is God's purpose. Gender and marriage are not incidental. They are vitally important. Gender is a part of God's original design. The difference between male and female is God's glory. Their sameness is God's glory. Their need for the other is God's glory. The sanctification of the man in the woman is God's glory. The satisfaction of the woman in the man is God's glory. The satisfaction of God's people in the pleasures of marriage is God's glory. The reproduction of God's people, the gift of children is God's glory. Living life together as husband and wife in sickness and health till death do they part is God's glory. And it's the whole one flesh relationship that's a glory to God. And the importance of marriage is not confined to Genesis. The entire Bible shows that God's glory is displayed in the covenant of marriage. Through stories, commandments, laws, proverbial words of wisdom, the Song of Solomon. If you've never read the Song of Solomon as a couple, you need to do that. It'll get you fired up and excited. You'll start reading the Song of Solomon and go, whoa, 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 whoa. I shouldn't be reading that in the Bible. Oh, yes, you should. In fact, that's the one book I tell couples in premarital counseling. So there's a book I want you to read, but it's, you can't read it till one week before you get married. I bait them. And they come back to me because I usually don't tell them. They come back and say, what book am I, are we supposed to read? I say, the book of Song of Solomon. Where's that at? So I show them in the Bible, and they read it, and then they get this big smile on their face. <laughs> because you see, that's what God's waiting for. So, but how do we pull all these things together? Well, in 1 Corinthians 7, 
1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, deals with marriage. And he helps us to understand these things. Look in verse 1 of chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's where pornography comes in. That's well, there's all kinds of things that come in there. But now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Embedded in this text are precepts and principles meant for us in our own sexually confused day. And I want to make a statement which I know might, you might reject, but here it goes anyway. I want to suggest to you that there is no biblical category of ending singleness as an ambition. There is no biblical category of enduring singleness except for the gift of celibacy for God's glory in, in the service of the king. Now, it's contrary thinking because we live in a day where we cherish our ability to define our own existence and to choose our own lifestyle. We live in a day of confusion in which marriage has been so marginalized that it is now merely one option among others. In society and even in many churches, enduring singleness is seen as one, uh, one more lifestyle option. And this is especially true of men, particularly the high number who conveniently self-rationalize that sex before marriage is biblically okay, often with the high-sounding cover that, of course, this is true only as long as it's in the context of a loving relationship. I believe the Scripture does not leave that option open to us, except that in extraordinary circumstances of God giving the gift of celibacy to certain individuals for His glory and for His service of the gospel. And Paul was concerned about that. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. So celibacy is a gift and marriage is a gift. They're gifts that God gives us. And you know, you have to know which is yours. To some of you, God will give a divine mission in life for the cause of his glory and for the furtherance of the gospel, for the health and the holiness of the church, that gift of celibacy rather than the gift of marriage. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that you are any less a man or any less a woman. It means that God, for his glory, for his church, is going to complete you in this life in a different way than he completes us in marriage. But Paul gives a critical tripwire here having to do with self-control and passion. Look at verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Now, I'm going to be brutally honest. 
If you've been given the gift of celibacy, you will be able to say before your Creator and Lord, I can gladly live out my days without the pleasures of sex, without the company of a spouse, and I can do so praising your name, trusting you for my every provision, and I'm ready to be deployed in your service to your glory. If you can honestly say that, and if other members of the body of Christ who know you well are able to see you as that in that role as well, then you go and you seize the mission the Lord's called you to. Fulfill his glory. But I believe celibacy is a rare gift. Most of you do not have it, and you know that because of what verses 8 and 9 apply and say directly to us. You are aflame with passion. But there is nothing more passionate than a husband who's been gone for several days and sees his wife. <laughs> nothing more passionate for her to see him finally coming home. I don't know how women who send their men off to military service for months, years, still hold that passion when they see each other. They hadn't changed. But they do it out of service to our country. But boy, when that reunion happens, it's a, it's a glory day. Amen? It's a glory day. It's the way it ought to be. It's the way it ought to be. In fact, it ought to be that way if you're fortunate enough to have one of you or both of you going off to work and you come home and you see each other every day, it ought to be a happy reunion every day. Amen? You ought to be so excited to see each other. You ought to be so slap happy you can't wait. Aye, aye, aye. You ought to be. You ought to be wanting to kiss on their head and everything. And I'll stop at the word everything. My concern is that the sin of sloth has invaded the Christian church on the issue of marriage. So much so that young adults think of marriage as something that I will eventually get to. One day I hope to be married, they think. But it will come after this, and after that, and after the other thing. In the meantime, they think that singleness comes with all kinds of pleasures and a freedom from responsibility. <laughs> we had a president who stood up yesterday in Chicago and said, we need dads to be at home. You know, they're killing 500 kids under the age of 18 just this year so far. 500. That's a lot of young people to be killed. There was a girl attending his meeting who got word after the meeting that her sister had been shot by a drive-by in Chicago. President Obama and his wife lived a mile from the epicenter of where all that's going on before he was elected president. But I'm so grateful to hear somebody finally stand up in his position and say, we need dads in our home. He even compared his own life. He said, I was raised by a single mother. He said, I turned out okay, but he said, I would have loved to have had the influence of a dad. Whoo! I can say amen to that statement. Dads, you carry so much weight, so much authority, so much power in the lives of your children. So much how you respond to them. It makes a huge difference. I think that's why it's easier to be a grandparent than it is to be a parent. Because, see, we messed up the kids. <laughs> we messed them up. Because we're, we're having to live with how we treated them and how we raised them. But then we get the grandkids, and all of a sudden, we, see, we had a little bit of practice, didn't we? And now, all of a sudden, the things that used to really irritate us and tick us off, not so much anymore. Why is that? Because it's that grandchild right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The single life has no diapers. <laughs> it 
It lacks responsibility that comes with marriage. It lacks accountability. For most of us as Christians, marriage is one of the most crucial issues of our accountability before God. It is one of the most crucial issues in our discipleship. And so we should first of all understand that our responsibility as a countercultural people, claimed by God's grace, purchased by Christ's blood, is not just to be men and women, whatever that means in this society, but to be husbands and wives and fathers and mothers. It means that you in this generation must understand that marriage is not a lifestyle option. Marriage is not something you should merely look forward to at some point in your life when you think that you are ready for it. You have made partner in the law firm. Oh no, you need to do it because God said to do it. Marriage in scripture is an expectation. And without the gift of celibacy, adulthood equals marriage. Now obviously, that's not the definition honored in our society today. Now to your outline, I want to give you four functions of marriage. And then I'm going to give you four enemies of marriage. So here we go. The first function of marriage is partnership. Partnership. It's directly revealed in 1 Corinthians 7, 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If husbands and wives would operate this way, they'd be less divorced. There'd be less divorced. Because what's, what's an old boy going to go do? See, a woman uses this as a tool against her husband to get what she wants. And the husband? Well, he just thinks, well, it's, a, it's crazy what he thinks. That's the problem with men is that we think too much. Especially about this. When it ought to be balanced. Partnership between a man and a wife is so radical that we actually forfeit independence and yet we live in a culture that says it's all about you everything's about you you're going to forfeit anything i'll do it on my own terms when i want to do when i what i want to do and when i want to do it but in marriage there's no more i but only we marriage is a partnership the second function of marriage is protection and we all need more protection uh, more than we want to admit i mean we have alarm systems in our house we have alarm system here at the church we have a we have alarm systems on our cars We've got alarm systems on our wristwatches. I mean, you know, we just got alarm systems about everything because we feel we need protection. Now, there's, a, there's one that you can put on your uh, checking account, LifeLock, and on any of your credit cards. And if something goes wrong, this little robot shows up and throws a fence down so the guy can't, you know, you've seen it. But one of the differences men, between men and women is that we need some fundamentally different kinds of protection. Some have said chivalry is dead, but it shouldn't be among God's people. Among God's people, we understand that a man is to protect a woman, to protect her honor, her heart, her reputation, sometimes even her health and safety as well. Guys, it's your God-given job. It's your God-given job. Just read the Bible. But there's also very important protection a woman gives a man in marriage, the protection of his passions. Men, we need in humility to confess that we need a wife to protect our honor, our passions, and our integrity. We need her there to remind us at every moment, you belong to me before God. You owe me all your sexual passions. You owe me all of your sexual interests. God has given us to each other, and you may not look outside this covenant of marriage where your passions might lead you. I am your protection. Wives, protect your husbands. Protect them just as he's going to protect you. Third function of marriage is procreation. 
You wouldn't know that from a secular conversation. We live in an age in which babies are considered the accidental byproduct of sexual passion. Planned Parenthood, last year, 2012, 333,000 abortions they paid for. I don't know about you. Why would God bless a nation that says that's okay? Children are just byproducts of sexual passion. Ah, if you didn't want that, just sweep it away. It's the woman's right to choose. She chose before the creation of that baby. The choice was made. Oh, well, hmm, I didn't plan for this. Well, you're pretty stupid then if you didn't plan for that. Huh. They're accidents. The Bible's real clear. It sends a clear message that from the very beginning, God's purpose in our sexuality and our gender in the covenant of marriage was that children be born and that his glory be demonstrated in the gift of children. Children are awesome. Grandchildren are more awesome. I'm fine. I'm loving it. I've got a grand dog that lives down in Houston, and I like that dog. <laughs> last, last Sunday uh, after lunch, Megan was outside with that dog laying on its back, putting this brush thing down its belly, and that dog, was just, its tongue was hanging out, legs were up like this. I told Cindy, I said, am I next? This looks good out there. <laughs> I don't think I want that brush he's using on him, you know, but I tell you, that's awesome. And Mark and Amy have this little bitty dog that lays on your neck. It just loves on you, licks all over you, everything. I love my grandchildren and my grand dogs. I do, I love them. They're a lot of fun. And I have to go to time out more than I like because I get in trouble because I try to give them too much. Martin Luther, you might remember that name. He was... He had a great family. Katie was his wife, and the Luther family was a very loving family. Uh, he learned to live in chaos, like most families do. Uh, he had a household full of kids that ran in and out. He would discipline them, teach them, enjoy them, put them in, on his knee, hold them up before his friends. Uh, Luther also was a seminary president, and whenever a young man would marry, he would always give sound advice. And here's what he would say. Understand this, my son, angels smile every time a mother changes a diaper, but angels laugh every time a father changes a diaper. And angels love to laugh. And then he would say, God is going to do something in you, and it isn't going to happen any other way than through the changing of diapers and the holding of hands and the process of being a father. Some pictures I've received from my son the last week or so have been my grandson laying on his chest. Precious, precious pictures. Oh my goodness, precious pictures. We can't have enough of those. Procreation is an essential part of marriage. The separation of passion and pleasure and all the other gifts of marriage from procreation is a foreign, unnatural thing that ought always to be called into question by the Word of God. And I'm not saying that a Christian couple may never use any method of birth control and timing. That's not what I'm arguing about. The assumption that children are an intrusion into our marriage and the sometimes byproduct of the act of sex is a deadly thing to the glory of God. Plan them, and if you don't plan them and they come anyway, enjoy them. Fourth function of marriage is pleasure. We know this because we have read about it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We know this because we have read the stories of Scripture. I'm sure when Adam saw Eve, he stepped back and went, 
No, I ain't never touching you. <clears throat> mm-mm, I ain't never touching Don't you know that's what he did? Remember, he just named the animals. He saw that they all fit together. And all of a sudden, he saw somebody that fit him. I'm sure they had some fellowship. Probably had a church dinner and everything else. You know how it goes along. <clears throat> we know that God made it perfect. Because all you got to do is read the Song of Solomon. You're going to know. Some of you who haven't read it are going to go, man, let's get through with this. I got to get home and read that. We know because God looked at his creation and declared that it was good, but understand that God made us in these bodies to his glory, and the bodies tell us many things. For one thing, a man's body says that he is to be united to a woman, and a woman's body says that she is to be united to a man. He did not create Adam and Eve. I mean, Adam and Ed. He didn't do it. He created Adam and Eve for a reason. Our bodies tell us something. Our drives tell us something. Do not despise what God has put within you. I speak both to women and to men, but particularly to guys. Do not despise the passion for sexual union that God put in you. Do not slander the goodness of God's creation. We were made for marriage. We are called to marriage. And all the unrest, the unsatisfaction, the anxiety in our souls is meant to drive us toward the satisfaction that God intends for us only in the covenant of marriage. Only in the covenant of marriage. Scripture says that the sex drive is put in us by God, amazingly enough, to drive us to holiness in marriage, to drive us to throw ourselves upon the mercy of our Creator, saying, I can't handle this, and to trust God's provision for both our spouse and for the grace and mercy to arrive that day when the covenant's made. I also want to speak about four enemies. I've given you four uh, principles there, but four enemies now. The first one is defilement. Hebrews 13, 4 says the marriage bed is to be held in honor and undefiled. Defilement most classically is done by adultery. It's a huge problem because it violates that which God has declared to, to be holy and that covenant made before him, the promise made by a husband to a wife, by a wife to a husband to keep only unto, uh, unto you until death do us part. There is a book every man should read called Every Man's Battle by Steve Arterburn. And you need to, if you're a man, you need to read that book. If you're married to a man, you need to read the book, but it's going to make you mad. <laughs> so I'm just telling you, ladies, if you read the book, you'll get upset. Or you'll understand him more than you've ever understood him. It's a powerful book. Every Man's Battle. When I read it, I thought, where was this 35 years ago? Well, I needed that book 35 years ago. So I'm telling you, it's a great book. You need to get it. Adultery is a disgrace in the sight of God. It's ugliness over which the people of God should be heartbroken. The church in this generation is going to be judged. Preachers, leaders in churches falling to this sin. Ought not to be. Ought not to be. But I submit to you that the temptations are great. And the opportunities galore. So we must be on guard. It's, it's no small thing. It's no small thing. But God can heal the brokenness of adultery. Oh, he can. I've seen it happen in couples' lives where one or the other messed up. Absolutely messed up. But the other one, the other one through some time was willing to receive that other one back into their life. Is that not a demonstration of what Jesus does for us every day? 
of our life. Sure, you can divorce. You have every reason to. Or you can demonstrate the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. Fornication, that's another defilement of marriage. It's not exactly the same thing as adultery. It's sex before marriage by unmarried partners. When Bible says that Adam knew Eve, it wasn't a euphemism. I think that it is just about as explicit as it gets because what happens in the act of sex is the transmission of a knowledge, a knowledge that should only be shared by a husband and a wife before God. And when that knowledge is shared with another, it's an awful knowledge to have. Marriage is weakened, the marriage bed is defiled, and the husband and wife arrive at the marriage bed with knowledge they should not have. Should not have. Around too many marital beds are a host of others who are there in spirit, previous partners who you knew, previous experiences that you've shared. And so what you do, you do if, if, if right now you are, are one who has known fornication. But the trust and the grace and the mercy of God, you know that those painful promptings can bring holiness in marriage. That's what I love about Almighty God. Is what we mess up, He can restore instantly. With our confession and our admission and our return to holiness. God can do it. Seen Him do it. Witnessed Him doing it. Divorce is the second enemy of marriage. God is explicit about divorce. He hates it. Uh, we must be the people for whom divorce is inconceivable. You know, I've never met a couple yet in premarital counseling who sit down in that counseling and say, hey, you know what, preacher, as soon as I get married, I'm going to get a divorce. <laughs> I'm just going to be in it a couple days. I'm done. Moving on. Oklahoma, 51% end in divorce. Every 51% every of the marriages in Oklahoma end in divorce. We're second only to Reno, Nevada. How about that? Right here in good old Oklahoma. We're the buckle of the Bible belt. Yeah. Because we take it too lightly. Take it way too lightly. The church needs to cultivate the awesomeness of marriage. And by example, live lives of marriage that bring glory to God. Divergence is the third enemy of marriage. The Wall Street Journal, in a review in the 1990s, I thought this would, you'd find this interesting, they talked about the dinks. Those are double income, no kids. And then there was the dens, double income and no sex. Because husbands and wives are both professionals, both involved in life, both traveling, both having their own lives, their own independence. And, and there's a cartoon that accompanied the story, and it was a cartoon of a man and a wife in bed with a laptop computer <laughs> on each of their laps. Divergence is a deadly danger. And then the last enemy of a marriage is delay. And this is where I might get in trouble today because people sometimes get angry when I talk about this, and that's okay. The average age for the first marriage of white men in America, according to a 2000 census, was 27 and a half years old. Updated data indicates it is now 28. For a white female, the average age for a first marriage is about 26.4. In the year 1900, the average boy reached sexual maturity at the age of 15 and married generally by 20. The average girl reached sexual maturity at, at about 14 and married somewhere between 18 and 20. Today, though, the situation uh, with, with puberty and sexual maturity, it comes about the age of 13. So we have, what, so what have we got here? We have created this incredible span of time where sexual passion is ignited, but there's no holy means for it to be fulfilled. 
And I want to speak of one sin that I think besets this generation. It's that sin of delaying marriage as a lifestyle option. This is a problem shared by men and women, but it is primarily a problem of men. We've established a boy culture in which boys are not growing up into men. Guys, God has given us a responsibility to lead, to take responsibility as a man. And does that mean having a job? You bet it does. Does that mean being productive? You bet it does. It means also taking the initiative to find a godly wife, to marry her, and be faithful to her in every way, and to grow up to be one who is known as husband, and by God's grace eventually as father. Sometimes men think they will put off being a husband and a father until they can establish their professional identity. I would beg you to rethink that. What is the ultimate priority God has called us to? Is the, is it, is the testing of our sanctification going to be our jobs? Nope. Scripture is clear that God will sanctify us largely through our marriages. The injury that comes by delay is multiple. The longer you wait to get married, the more habits and lifestyle patterns you will, have to, you will have that will be difficult to handle in marriage. The more you as an adult define yourself as an I, the harder it will be, will be for you to become a we. Of course, God's grace can build a wonderful marriage. Even when people marry well into adulthood. And if you are in that situation right now, be determined from this very moment to fulfill God's purpose, calling in your life by finding that spouse, find that woman God has for you. Marry her and say from now on and forevermore, I'm planting a stake in the ground, a line on the calendar, a mark in my life, that from this point on, we are going to seek in every way to reflect God's glory in marriage. Oh, what a blessed day that will be in your life. And notice men. You bear the bigger burden here because you have the responsibility to be the initiator and the spiritual leader. We've got too many men walking away. Too many men abdicating responsibility. Too many men not changing diapers. I find myself as a grandfather not wanting to change diapers anymore because they smell worse than they've ever smelled. But I did my share. I'm wanting my son to enjoy that experience so now as I hold up my grandson with a certain aroma about him I'm looking for my son because I thought I think my son needs to be brought into that realm of responsibility you've got to men you've got to assume the role of leadership in taking premarital sex off the table you must tell her no one of my sons was dating a girl who broke up with him I said what happened he said, Dad, she wanted to have sex. And I said, no. I couldn't hug him enough. He didn't need her. I had another, another one of our sons. He had a girl break up with him for the same reason. And her comment to him was, you're really too good for me. You're just too good a man for me. What an idiot that girl is. To find a man with that kind of inner strength and conviction. You've got to prepare yourself for the task of becoming a godly man, worthy of a godly wife, a man who's already decided to enter into a lifetime commitment with the wife God's preparing for him before you even start to seek her. And if you're yet young, I want to exhort you to think of marriage not as something that is out there somewhere on the horizon, but as one of the nearest responsibilities you can now face. You've got to be urgently seeking a spouse as much as you would seek God would have you do vocationally as much as you would seek God on, how you, on the terms of the missions for your life. 
But then you've got to remember that your role in seeking, uh, in this seeking process should be faithfulness. God is in charge of results and his timing or outcome for us may move away from ours. God cares more about our heart's desire than actual results. Prayer, patience, humility are the foundations of that process. Get serious about it. Understand it's a matter of accountability. Understand that delay can equal disobedience. Seize the responsibility. Go for the maximum display of God's glory. Do not be satisfied with anything less. Stay pure until marriage. Trust God in all things. Honor marriage in every, every respect. Let the marriage bed be undefiled and live out God's passion as married couples. Show God's glory in marriage. Remember, when you reach adulthood, it's the time to move there. In those teen years, that's when you're developing toward manhood or womanhood. Waiting until then is what God would want you to do. Don't get ahead of the game. And we've been praying for Krista's stepsister, such a young age, to have a baby. Her whole, her whole life just changed. I don't know where the young man is in that situation but I bet he's not where he should be. Nor would he have the capacity to be the spiritual leader that he needs to be in her life, in that baby's life. Father, I ask you this morning to move among us and help us to understand the power of your word and the power of your principles. And God, would we be so clear, so crystal clear, and what you want us to do and how you want us to behave. And Father, would we see marriage as something special, something that you desire for each of us, something that you have created for our good pleasure. But God, it's in the confines of marriage that we find that. Now, we may have messed up. We may have gotten the cart in front of the horse. Well, the great news is that in you, the cart can get behind the horse and holiness can be restored. And so, God, I'm praying that there's somebody in this room that says, you know, I, man, I've really messed up. The great news of Scripture is that you forgive. All we have to do is ask you. So, Father, if there's somebody here today that just needs to decide something like that, would you give them courage to do it? Maybe there's somebody here who wants to join the church say, you know, I want this church to be my home church. Would you give them courage to do that? Then maybe there's somebody here who just needs prayer and uh, they'd like to be anointed with oil uh, in that prayer. God, whatever it is, whatever need might be there, would you encourage them through your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.